You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We have been going through 1 Thessalonians verse by verse um, since last fall. And we have come to chapter 4. And we've kind of camped out in chapter 4 because we've got some decisions to make. And I told you up front that there's a lot of people that believe 1 Thessalonians 4 is about the rapture. There's a lot of people who don't believe in a rapture and would say 1 Thessalonians 4 is strictly about the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus comes back to put an end to everything. And I told you in order for us to progress into 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, and then into 2 Thessalonians We're going to have to start making some decisions about how to approach these passages of Scripture. And so we've been uh, basically trying to establish a foundation for understanding eschatology or a study of the end times. And I've been giving you some reasons why we're going to approach 1 Thessalonians 4 as not a rapture. That we're going to approach these passages as the second coming of Jesus. Not a rapture where Jesus takes his church away, but instead a situation where the church endures the tribulation. That the church is here until the day Jesus comes back, that there is no rapture. Now I told you that there's going to be some things that we disagree about, and we may disagree about that. You may be uh, a strong believer in the rapture, that Jesus is coming back to take his church out of here. I told you there's a lot of things that we can disagree about, and it's okay. We're going to really try to rally around the things that we do agree on. The fact that Jesus is coming back, that he's coming back visibly, that he's going to destroy sin and death one day, that believers and unbelievers are going to be resurrected, that we're promised, we're assured the fact that we will be resurrected one day. Unbelievers to eternal punishment, believers to eternal reward. And ultimately, we've said that all of God's plans will be accomplished. Those are things that we can agree on. We can disagree about some of the details, but we will, we need to, we must agree on the fact that Jesus is coming back visibly, physically, to destroy sin and death, to defeat Satan, to resurrect believers and unbelievers, to bring justice to this world, to judge unbelievers with eternal punishment, to reward believers with eternal reward. And that while we may be confused about the details, God is not, and He will accomplish everything that He intended to accomplish. And I've given you some reasons for studying eschatology. Revelation 22 says there's blessing in seeking to understand the end time prophecies. Revelation 1, 17-18 talks about encouragement that we should get from understanding the end times. And we're going to see as we get into 1 Thessalonians 4 that the main motivation... The main reason that Paul's even bringing up end time stuff in Thessalonians is to encourage the believers for the here and now. So understanding what happens in the future brings us encouragement for today. It helps us face our circumstances for today. That's the overwhelming reason Paul brings it up. Paul's not interested in just entertaining people with uh, uh, prophecy seminars and what's going to happen in the future and just trying to wow us with his information. His, his intent is to encourage believers for the here and now, to help them on a daily basis experience their circumstances with hope for the future. And then lastly, 1 John 2 talks about the purity that comes from understanding the details about the end times. That the more we understand that Jesus is coming back, the more impact it has on us for today in the choices that we make, 
that we make choices based on the fact that Jesus could come back at any time. That we want to be faithful and pure, living the way that He's called us to, so that when He comes, Scripture says, we don't shrink back, but instead we, we confidently rejoice over the fact that He has come for His children. Now some reasons that we're approaching 1 Thessalonians 4 is uh, not a rapture passage. We've talked about, number one, the relationship of Israel and the church. I haven't come across anybody that believes in a rapture that doesn't also believe that Israel and the church are separate peoples of God. Okay, I'm going to say it again. I've not come across anybody that believes in the rapture that doesn't also believe that Israel and the church are separate. Meaning, nobody believes that Israel and the church are the same and believe in a rapture. That one of the distinguishing marks of believing in a rapture is to believe that Israel and the church are separate peoples of God. We're going to talk a little bit more about that again today. But secondly, as we've looked in Scripture, the believer's hope really seems to be in the second coming and not in a rapture. That the believer is to hope in the fact that Jesus is coming one day to put an end to sin and death. The implication being that some of us are going to be here when that happens. That that's the hope that we're to be waiting for. Then thirdly, as we looked at last week, the Bible's teaching on tribulation. The Bible presents tribulation being the normative circumstance for a believer. You would expect explicit teaching in Scripture if we were supposed to get removed before great tribulation. And as we look at the Scripture, it's not really explicit. It's not really clear that that's what would happen. Instead, what we see when we look at Scripture is the fact that we need to be uh, gearing up for difficulty, gearing up for trial. The encouragement is that God uses trials, difficulties, persecutions, tribulations for our good, according to Romans 8, 28. According to James. That he, that he, he teaches us perseverance. He teaches us patience through our difficulties. So God uses evil in our life for our good. And then we said last week as well, 1 Thessalonians 4, it's the major, major, major rapture passage. If you're teaching on the rapture, you're going to go to 1 Thessalonians 4. And there's no mention of escaping tribulation in 1 Thessalonians 4. There's no mention of it at all. There's no encouragement that this happens right before a great tribulation. And you would expect that to be there in the major passage on the rapture. And we looked at last week in Revelation, Jesus or God promises uh, to a church that he will spare them, protect them, guard them from the wrath to come from that day of the Lord. But we said the same word there is used in the garden when Jesus prays for his disciples and says, God, don't take them out of here. Just guard them and protect them. So we said the implication seems to be that they're here, that believers are here when this great tribulation comes on this earth. Now, that's kind of the foundation for why we're approaching 1 Thessalonians the way that we're going to approach it. Um, But in talking about all that, I've made several references to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 is one of the most debated chapters in the church amongst theologians. There's a lot of disagreement. I've made a lot of references to Revelation 20. um, And I've taken for granted the fact that some of you um, maybe don't fully understand what all is going on in Revelation 20. So what I want to do today is kind of step back. We're going to look at the chapter Revelation 20 together. I'm going to give you the four major views for how people interpret it. I'm going to give you the reasons for why I don't accept three of the views. And I'm going to give you some of the reasons for why I hold to one of the views cautiously right now. 
that I'm not definitive on it, that I'm not uh, married to it, that I wouldn't die for it, but that I have strong convictions towards leaning towards this view about Revelation 20. So let's look at Revelation chapter 20 together. I think having a good understanding um, as a church about this chapter, all of us on the same page, will probably help us as we get into 1 Thessalonians because we may have to make some references back to this chapter. Alright, Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And will come out to deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne of him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small. Standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And we're going to go through these four views, um, and I'm going to try to give you as much information as I can. Um, specifically in your notes, I've given you eight questions that we're going to try to answer, and I'm going to show you how each view answers these questions. Right? When is the millennium, this thousand-year reign of Jesus? When will Jesus return, before or after the millennium? What does the binding of Satan refer to? Remember, it says he's cast into a bottomless pit, and he's bound so he can't see the nations. Is a thousand years a literal period of time? What is the first resurrection? What is the second death? What and when will the rapture be? And what will the world be like until Christ returns? So these are eight questions that we're going to look at after I tell you about each view. If you want, you can turn your notes over on the back. You can write these four views out and you can jot down some of the things that I share with you about these different views. And if need be, I can email you notes because there's a lot of stuff. All right? The first view is what's known as the dispensational premillennial view. This view says there's a literal 1,000 year reign of Christ on the earth. 
Okay? So dispensational premillennialism says that Jesus will physically come to this earth, rule and reign on this earth for 1,000 years in the future. In the future. Okay? He will rule and reign most likely in Jerusalem area, the, the Holy Land, and he will be here physically on a throne. Kind of a description to define this, I put this in your notes. The church age, which is what we're in now, will continue until the time of the rapture, when Christ suddenly and unexpectedly returns to call believers to himself. So we'll be going along, church age, everybody's meeting every Sunday. Jesus comes back, and everybody that's a believer gets raptured into the sky, and they go, they're with Christ in heaven. Christ will return to heaven with the believers, and this is the church, sparing them from the coming tribulation. So we, we would leave, and there would be seven years of tribulation. At the end of the great tribulation, Christ will return again, which is known as the second coming, with believers to establish this thousand-year millennial reign. Okay, so that's the timeline. People that hold to this view. We're in the church age. Jesus comes back. We're raptured out of here. Okay, we're raptured out of here. We're in heaven for seven years. Everybody else is up on earth for seven years. Some people get saved. Jesus comes back, what we call the second coming. And then he ushers us into a thousand year reign where people um, who are alive will have babies. They'll grow up. They'll die. Jesus will rule and reign. And at the end of the thousand years, it's when God judges, and then we have eternity. Okay? That's what a lot of you probably grew up um, hearing in church. That's the predominant view amongst conservative evangelicals. Okay? That's the left-behind view. For those of you who have seen those movies, that movie depicts this view. Alright? Um, some important character traits about this view. First, it's defined... By a strong belief that Israel and the church are distinct and separate. Okay? You don't believe this view unless you believe Israel and the church are separate. That's why we started by talking about Israel and the church. Everything that I see in the New Testament points to the two of them being the same. That God has a chosen people that he has saved in the Old Testament, Israel. They are called Israel. Why? Because they're all predominantly part of national Israel. It would make sense that the name of God's people in the Old Testament would be Israel because the large majority of them are Israelites. And we talked about some Old Testament Christians that weren't Israelite, people like Rahab, who was from Jericho, uh, Ruth, who was from Moab. These are exceptions to the norm. Most Christians in the Old Testament were Israelites. So when God refers to his people in the Old Testament, they're known as Israel. People that hold to dispensational premillennialism see this as two separate people. That in the New Testament, when God begins to save Gentiles, he is doing this because Israel rejected him. And now he has two people. It says, Israel has earthly blessings coming, while the church has heavenly blessings coming. So during this millennial reign, and even into the future, um, Dispensational premillennialists would say the church is in heaven, Israel is on the earth. That not only are we separate now, but we stay separate into eternity. That God has two peoples. That he promises heavenly things to the church, earthly blessings like uh, the land of Canaan, um, 
the, the sacrifice system, Jesus on a throne, he promises that to Israel. Okay? Um, Jesus came to offer the kingdom to Israel at the first time. This view teaches that when Jesus showed up that very first time, grew up from the manger, that he offered the kingdom. He offered the millennial reign to the Jews, and they rejected it. Now, because of that rejection, God is dealing with his second people, the church, until he deals with Israel again in the future. God will remove his second people, the church, during the rapture, so that he can focus on Israel during the tribulation time and prepare them for the millennial reign. Do you see why you, you have to believe that they're separate to believe in the rapture, the tribulation, the way that they talk about it in the millennial reign? It's because God gets his church out of here and he focuses only on Israel during that tribulation and millennial reign time. If you don't believe that they're separate, if you believe that they're the same, then there's no reason to see a rapture and a tribulation this way because they're the same people. Okay? So if God were to come take his people, there would be nobody to focus on during the tribulation time. Uh, when Jesus returns after the seven years of tribulation, believers on earth will be saved and brought into the millennial reign. So, Jesus goes away with his church, seven years of tribulation. A lot of Israelites get saved during that time. Jesus comes back, gets rid of all the lost people, and then everybody that was a Jew that got saved during the tribulation, they go into the millennial reign, they continue to get married, they continue to grow up, they die. Everything kind of continues like it continues right now, except Jesus is here. During this millennial reign, Satan is bound for a thousand years. So this view teaches that during this future thousand-year reign, Satan gets removed from this earth completely. No influence by Satan. No temptation by Satan. He's gone. Everybody worships Jesus in a rebuilt temple where sacrifices are offered just like in the Old Testament. And it's done in a way where we remember Jesus' death. And then, like I said, uh, the church, according to this view, lives in heaven or in the new Jerusalem that's right above the earth. At the end of the millennial kingdom, Satan is loose. Um, he'll gather uh, children that were rebellious during the millennial reign. He'll gather them together to try to fight Jesus. Jesus will ultimately defeat them. And then uh, everybody will be resurrected and Judgment will happen and go to turn. That was that was a lot of information. Uh, there's a lot of information in that view. Uh, big points. Israel and the church are separate. Jesus focuses on the church sometimes. He focuses on Israel sometimes. Ultimately, the thousand years of Revelation 20 is designed for Israel. Promises that remain to Israel and not the church. It's the, like I said, the dominant view among conservative evangelicals. We're conservative evangelicals, but this is not the view that I would hold to. But it is the dominant view. Some reasons why it's the dominant view, because it would make sense if it's the dominant, most widely accepted view, there's a good chance that it's the right view. Here's some reasons why I think it's the dominant view. One, it boasts of taking the Bible literally. That's one of their big points is that we take the Bible literally for what it says. And so people kind of rally towards that. It seems to offer clear answer to questions that people have about the future. Most people, when you um, 
when you say we're going to be talking about the end times, everybody's attention perks up, attendance gets bigger at churches. Uh, even when I was teaching my sixth graders this spring, they were they were not interested a lot of times. But I said, all right, next week we're starting our study on the Book of Revelation. Everybody was like, woohoo! Like we love talking about end time stuff. I had questions all two weeks that I talked about it. I didn't have a question for any of the weeks leading up to what I was what we talked about. We're talking about the gospel, Jesus saving people. Anybody got any questions about that? Mm. All right, we're talking about Revelation and everybody's questions. Everybody wants to know about the future. And this position talks a lot about the future and tries to find fulfillment in current events. This is the view that we look at things going on in Israel right now and say, ah, do you hear what happened in Israel this week? That goes right along with book and chapter in the Old Testament. This is being fulfilled right now. And it gets people excited and it makes people almost like detectives trying to figure out, oh, when's this going to happen? When's this going to happen? When's this going to happen? And people are reading the newspaper trying to figure out when certain verses are going to happen. Um, most TV preachers hold this view. Why is that significant? Because they're on TV and they're proclaiming their view. So what is, what is part of the reason this is the most widely held view? Because the people that are on TV believe this view, and they're the ones that are teaching it. Some advocates of the dispensational premillennial view, and I listed them for you in the John Darby, George Mueller, D.L. Moody, C.I. Schofield, Charles Stanley, Chuck Swindoll, Billy Graham, James Dobson, Jerry Falwell, John MacArthur, Hal Lindsey, Tim LaHaye. The Left Behind series. Now, some reasons that I that I'm not holding to this view right now. Some reasons that I don't hold to this view. One, I don't see any scriptural support for seeing Israel and the church as a separate entity. I don't see any scriptural support for seeing two separate peoples of God. Instead, if you want to go back and listen to the podcast, we saw from Scripture over and over in the New Testament. God bringing Israel and the church together. That he grasps Israel and the church together in Romans 11. That he's bringing them together. That he's tearing down racial barriers. No scriptural support that I can find that shows them as being separate. And if they're not separate, then this view doesn't hold any water. I told you the only people that hold in this view uh, are people that believe that Israel and the church are separate. We've already talked about the believer's hope as the second coming, not a rapture. Tribulation is something I should expect to experience rather than be spared from. That's dispensational premillennialism. Any questions I can answer about that before I give you the eight answers to the questions? Alright. In your notes, you can write down as much of this as you want to. When does the millennium happen according to this? Happens in the future. Happens in the future. And it's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. So when does this view happen? It happens in the future. So it hasn't happened yet. It's not happening right now. It happens into the future after the tribulation. It happens in the future. And it's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. When will Jesus return? He will return um, before the millennium. He'll return before the millennium, and he'll actually return twice, this view believes, the rapture and the second coming. So Jesus comes back before the millennium. That's why we call this view pre-millennialism. Jesus comes back before the millennium. 
What does the binding of Satan refer to? I told you that it means that he is completely removed from the earth. He's completely removed from the earth. Number four, is the thousand years a literal period of time? Yes. This time on earth with Jesus reigning will last for a thousand years. Yes. Number five, what is the first resurrection? It's the physical resurrection of Christian martyrs and Old Testament saints. It's the physical resurrection of Christian martyrs and Old Testament saints. The second death refers to hell, which is question number six. What and when will the rapture be? It happens uh, before the tribulation. Before the tribulation. It's when Jesus takes his church away. And number eight, what will... The world be like until Christ returns. Evil will increase until the great tribulation begins. Evil will continue to increase on this earth while the church is here until we're gone and the great tribulation begins. Alright, that's dispensational premillennialism. Only people that hold to this view are people that view the church and Israel as separate. Next, what is historic premillennialism? Historic premillennialism. Very similar, except historic premillennialists do not believe in a rapture. They don't believe in a rapture because they believe Israel and the church are the same. Israel and the church are the same, so there's no need for the rapture. It's a literal reign. It may or may not be a thousand years, and Christ is on this earth. So they view the millennial reign very similar to dispensational premillennialism. Jesus comes and reigns on this earth, maybe for a thousand years, maybe not for an exact thousand years, but either way, he is here on this earth, and there are people living and dying, growing up, that type of thing. The scripture, the present church age will continue through a time of great tribulation, so they believe the church goes through the tribulation, until the return of Christ. Once Christ returns, he will establish a literal millennial kingdom on the earth. Upon his return, believers, both living and dead, will be resurrected to new bodies, and they will reign with Christ for the thousand years. Alright, advocates of this view, John Piper, Wayne Grudem, George Ellen Lodge. And I'm sure there's others that have done three that I never heard of that I could find. I'm not going to give you a lot more about this view because of the similarities of the view that we just described. Okay? The timeline. We all live here. Church going, going, going. There's a great tribulation. The church lives right through that great tribulation. Jesus comes back, the second coming. He comes back and he wipes away lost people. He judges lost people. Revelation 19. Remember the, are you invited to suffer or will you be suffered? Revelation 19. Has people being invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? And then Jesus coming and killing everybody and birds eating the flesh of the people that are left. Will you be suffer or will you be invited to suffer? That's Revelation 19. That's Jesus' second coming 
according to historic premillennialism. Then there's the millennial reign, and then at the end of the millennial reign, uh, we go into eternity. Now, some difficulties that I have with this view, why I don't hold to this view. Number one, I can't figure out who enters the millennial kingdom. I just described to you Revelation 19. The second coming, 1 Thessalonians 4. When Jesus comes back, everybody gets a dead Christian. What happens to them? What does the Bible teach? They're, they're raised to life, right? And what happens to people that are here that are Christians when Jesus comes back? What happens to Christians that are here when Jesus comes back? Yeah, we get caught up with Old, with Old Testament dead people, and we all get glorified bodies. Okay, so everybody that's a Christian has a promise that when Jesus comes back, we are caught up into the cloud with Jesus, given new bodies. Revelation 19 says that Jesus comes, and everybody that's not a Christian, he basically wipes out. And what I can't figure out is who's left in a non-glorified body to go into the millennial kingdom to live. Because the, 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 the millennial reign describes nations being around. Because Satan has to get thrown into a pit. Why? So he can't deceive those people. But according to Revelation 19, it sounds like either you have a glorified body or you're dead. You're dead. I can't find anybody that's alive going to the millennial reign. Number two, how can Christ reign and all his glory and still be rejected? This view says that there are people who, who live on this earth just like dispensational premillennialism. Christians live on this earth, we're worshiping Jesus in Jerusalem. Satan's not here to even influence us. But by the end, when we read Revelation 20, by the end of this thousand years, there's a huge army of unbelievers. Because when Satan gets released, he gathers all these unbelievers up, and they try to attack the church, and they try to attack uh, Jesus. It's hard for me to it's hard for me to, to, to understand how there can be so many people that reject a literal physical Jesus reigning on this earth in all his glory with glorified believers around for them to say, I don't believe this. I, I, I don't believe Jesus is Lord. I don't believe that he that he's gonna rule and reign. I don't believe that we get glorified bodies, even though there's people running around with glorified bodies. Like, it's hard for me to see how that many people could reject Jesus and then listen to Satan, who's been gone for a thousand years, and try to attack Jesus. It's hard for me to reconcile that belief with what my logic says, which doesn't always mean the logic's right, but just trying to reason through some of this, I'm having a hard time with it. This view would also say that creation has to wait a long time to be renewed. Remember we said that Romans 8 talks about how creation looks forward to the day that Jesus comes back and that his children get new bodies? Creation personified in Romans 8 says we want to be fixed too. Creation wants to be fixed. Creation is subjected to sin and futility. According to this view, creation has to wait over a thousand years after Jesus comes back to be fixed. Because the new heavens and the new earth would not happen until after the thousand years. The more clear passages to me about Jesus returning seem to have everything happen at once. Resurrections and judgments without a thousand years yet. Because this view would say only Christians get raised at the beginning, that unbelievers don't get resurrected until a thousand years later. 
But the passages that are more clear in Scripture say that when Jesus comes back, some are resurrected from life, some are resurrected from death. doesn't really seem to allow a big time gap in between those two. Um, and then, it's hard for me to understand why Satan would need to be bound, like why that would be so important. Remember Revelation 20. When this thing starts, Satan is, is removed from the earth for a thousand years. But everybody that goes into the millennial kingdom is supposedly Christian. So who's Satan deceiving? Like, why is there such a need to get Satan out of here if everybody that goes into the millennial kingdom is a Christian? There, there's, there's really not anybody for him to deceive, it doesn't seem like. The necessity to get him out of here doesn't seem to be there the way the passage seems to indicate. All right? Um... The questions and answers for premillennialism, the historic view. The millennium is in the future, but they don't see it as a fulfillment necessarily of promises to Israel. Jesus will return before the millennium, just like the first one. Uh, the binding of Satan means that Satan's completely gone. A thousand years may or may not be literal. Same for the first resurrection. It refers to everybody that's dead in Christ being physically raised. Second death refers to hell. It's incorrect to say that, um, that we don't believe in a rapture because this view believes in a rapture in the sense that, remember we talked about, we will be caught up into the air. We will be raptured out of here, but we will come right back to the earth. So this view would say that when Jesus comes at the second coming, believers are caught up with Jesus in the air, but we don't go to heaven, we come right back to this earth. So that's when the rapture would happen, and then evil will continue. Evil will continue. That's historic premillennialism. Alright, postmillennialism. We'll fly through post-millennialism, hopefully, and then we'll get into um, millennialism. Post-millennialism is a time of peace on the earth. It may or may not be a thousand years, and it's brought on by the success of the gospel. This view is way different than the first two. It's way different. It's great in theory. I don't see a lot of biblical support for it. Um, I'd love to see biblical support for it. Um, I just don't. Alright? Post-millennialism says... The kingdom of God is now being extended in the world through the preaching of the gospel and the saving work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of individuals. Through the efforts of the church and the power of the Spirit, eventually the world will be Christianized, at which point the earth will enjoy a golden age of righteousness prior to the return of Jesus. This time of peace is the millennial reign of Revelation 20. After a prolonged time, Christ will return to stop a final rebellion by Satan and unbelievers. Resurrect both believers and unbelievers at the same time for judgment, and then all will be ushered into eternity. This is what this view says. It says that the church continues on, but at some point we really start to become extremely effective. And this world begins to respond to Jesus in massive numbers. To the point that this world is considered Christianized. Basically, the, um, the proportions are switched. The ratio of Christian to non-Christian 
get switched, and it's the norm to be a follower of Jesus. That the gospel, the Great Commission, share the gospel, disciple all nations, the church actually does that and actually does it effectively, and this entire world, in a sense, becomes Christian. That the norm becomes following Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody gets saved. There's still pockets of rebellion. There's still people who don't get saved. But ultimately, this world becomes Christianized. Culture becomes Christianized. We don't have to worry about what we're watching on TV. We don't have to worry about books that are coming out. We don't have to worry about the music that's available in our stores because our world has become Christianized. That's the post-millennial view. The millennial reign of Jesus is Jesus ruling and reigning in the hearts of his people on this earth in such a way that everybody's following Jesus in a sense. It's defined by its highly optimistic view of the future. Where the majority of the earth gets saved and sin is greatly decreased. God is ruling and reigning in the hearts of his people. They actually believe, and this is why it's really a hard time with this, that Revelation 19, remember, you go to supper, or are you going to be supper? That that chapter is about the effectiveness of the gospel. That that is the destruction of sin in our hearts and the gospel getting people saved. You go back and read Revelation 19, and you tell me if that sounds like an evangelistic passage about people getting saved. Because when I read it, it sounds like Jesus bringing death and judgment to unbelievers. Most millennials would say, you know, Jesus defeating his enemies, but he defeats them with the gospel, and they get saved. Some advocates of post-millennialism, this is why I can't, like, make fun of this view, because these are really good people that believe this view. John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, Matthew Henry, George Whitfield, they're all dead. Um, so this view is not as prominent, probably, as some of the other views. Doug Wilson, who is an extremely good guy, pastors in Iowa, um, he's hardcore about what's going on. The problem that I have with it is that it seems to make our hope this golden age as opposed to saying it seems to make it that I'm looking forward to when everybody's a Christian as opposed to Jesus coming back. And all through the New Testament, the hope that we have is that Jesus is coming back, not some golden age where everybody's a Christian. Scripture seems to indicate that things get worse before they get better. And that's the pattern we see in the New Testament. We don't see any like real assurance or promise that things get better before Jesus comes back. Instead, as we look at last week, we see tribulation and apostasy. People walking away from the faith. People abandoning the faith. People persecuting the church. And it seems to minimize the promise of suffering for the believer. Because everybody gets saved. There is no suffering. There is no persecution. Some answers to the questions for this view. The millennium is future. It's future. While some post-millennialists believe it's already started, most would say that it's still in the future, that the golden age hasn't started. Jesus returns after the millennium. That's why it's called post-millennialism. The second coming happens after the millennium. The binding of Satan refers to uh, the limiting of his power. So that he can't deceive people from the gospel. Basically, Satan is limited in his power so that he can't deceive people from the gospel. A thousand years is a figurative number. It's not a literal thousand years. 
Number five and number seven are the same as amillennialism, so we'll wait until we get to that one. Number six, the second death refers to hell. And number eight, good triumphs over evil. So instead of things getting worse, everything gets better, is what post-millennialism would say. All right, now lastly, amillennialism. Amillennialism is a literal reign of Christ in heaven with deceased saints during the time between the first and second coming. So for amillennialists, we would say that the millennial reign, this Revelation 20 passage, happens right now. That it happens between the first coming when Jesus came and died on the cross and his second coming that's in the future. And that the reign of Jesus is Jesus ruling and reigning in heaven until he puts all of his, his enemies under his foot and that the saints that are ruling and reigning with him are those that die and wake up in his presence. That, that would be the first resurrection as well. It's dead saints who die, who are martyred, some who are martyred, uh, they wake up in heaven and they rule and reign with Jesus in heaven because he's in control of everything anyways. And that this reign is not a literal thousand years, it lasts from the first coming to the second. So it's still a real millennial reign. It's called amillennialism because it means no millennial reign. It's really an incorrect term for it because it does believe in a millennial reign. It's just happening not on earth. And that's the first kind of characteristic of it. Is there's no literal reign of Jesus on the earth until he actually comes here in the new earth. And that's when he makes everything new. Unbelievers are in hell. He recreates the heavens and the earth. The description of the present church age will continue until Christ returns. Currently, those saints who have been laid to rest are reigning in a literal, vibrant kingdom that is in heaven, not on earth. The millennial reign is thus happening right now with all the other end time events. Happens, or all the other end time events happen at once. Resurrection of believers and unbelievers, final judgment, and then eternity. Some reasons that, that I would hold to this view. Um, the imagery in Revelation 20 is more consistent with heaven. Than earth. When you read Revelation 20, the, the descriptions going on there about them ruling and reigning on thrones, pretty much every other time in Revelation when thrones is mentioned, it's mentioned in heaven. Thrones that are in heaven. So if we're trying to be consistent with what everything else that, that's said in Revelation is, every other time, for the most part, when thrones are mentioned in Revelation, they are mentioned in heaven. So the imagery going on in Revelation 20 seems more consistent with heaven than an actual reign on earth. Um, this view would say that Old Testament prophecies uh, about an earthly kingdom point either to the church age, a heavenly reign that's going on right now, or the new earth in the future. This view would also say that the binding of Satan has happened right now. This view would say that Satan is bound right now. Now that's hard to, to imagine because what do we see in the New Testament? We see things like Satan walks around like a what? Like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Okay, so we've got passages that talk about spiritual warfare. That in Ephesians, we're to put on the shield of faith so that we can stop the what? What's the shield of faith block? Arrows, fiery darts. The fiery darts of Satan, okay? It doesn't seem like he's bound if he's shooting fiery arrows at us. If he's walking around like a lion trying to eat us. So how does this view... How does this view really believe that Satan is in a bottomless pit right now 
the New Testament says he's walking around like a roaring lion. First, I want to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 12. So go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 12 with me real quick. We already saw in Revelation 20 that Satan's going to be bound and tossed into a bottomless pit. If you look in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28 and 29, this is when Jesus is being accused of being demonic when he's casting out demons. You're, you're from Satan because you cast out demons. And Jesus kind of looks at these people and he's like, why would I cast out demons if I was a demon? Like, why would I work against my own people? He says, I'm not from Satan. If I was from Satan, I wouldn't be casting out demons. I would be putting demons into people, basically. So he says, your logic is flawed. Then he goes on to say that, that he's working what he does through the Spirit. He says, but if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, we're talking about a millennial kingdom, right? And Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. The blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Jesus says, I'm not from... I'm not from Satan. In fact, I'm, I'm God. I'm doing this through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he gives a picture here and he says, how can I do what I'm doing unless I bind the strong man so that I can take everything that's in his house? Remember, we talked about the fact that in the Garden of Eden, what happened? Satan came in and tried to steal everything from God. He tries to take God's creation from him. Comes in, tempts Adam and Eve. Satan's, Satan's thinking most likely is, I convinced a third of the angels to follow me, and what did God do? He kicked them out of heaven. I mean, he banished them. No forgiveness, no opportunity for repentance. They're gone. So now Satan thinks, if I can convince Adam and Eve, if I can convince Adam and Eve to follow me, well, now I've got another part of God's creation. And so he tempts Adam and Eve. They fall into sin. Satan's expecting banishment. They're banished from the garden, but what Satan doesn't expect is what God tells them there in the garden. So I'm going to send somebody through their line that will defeat you, Satan, that will ultimately crush you. So God says, yes, Satan, you've won a little victory here. Not out of my control because I allowed you to do this, but you have, you have convinced Adam and Eve to walk away from me. But God says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to rescue them and bring them back to me. And Jesus describes how that happens. He finds Satan in Matthew 12, so that he can go into his house and take whatever he wants. It's like what a, a robber would do if he broke into your house. He would probably uh, get you out of the way, maybe bind you up, so that he can then take whatever he wants out of your house. That's the picture that Jesus gives us. He says, this is happening right now. This is what's about to happen when I die on the cross. I'm going to bind Satan and take everything back to me. The words that's used here is the exact Greek words used in Revelation 20 when it talks about Satan being bound and limited. It's the exact same Greek words. So if we read Greek, we would see the correlation and say, hey, that's the same words. 
And all millennials would say that Revelation 20, the binding of Satan, is happening right now, just like Jesus said. Because Jesus, at least to some degree, tells us that Satan is back. That he's taking mankind back to himself. And there's another way that amillennialists believe that Satan is bound. Let's go back to Revelation 20. This is a, an expanded view on what it means for Satan to be bound. So this view would say that, yes, Satan's still here. He's walking around like a roaring lion. He's shooting, he's shooting arrows. But the binding is specific to the fact that he cannot deceive the nation. Think about it. Old Testament, who did we say God's people were? Israel. Why did we say they were called Israel? Because most of the Christians were Israel. All the other nations live in darkness. You read the Old Testament, they are heavy into idolatry, heavy into demonic worship. They're killing their babies and worshiping these false gods. I mean, they are completely deceived and blinded. God's people in the New Testament are called what? The church. Why? Because there are Christians all over the world. Right? There's Christians all over the world. They're not just in Israel. There are Christians on every continent. It's never been like that before in history. Old Testament, everybody was in Israel that was a Christian for the most part. Maybe a few here and there. But I mean, if you wanted to follow Yahweh, you had to get to Israel. Because everybody else was in darkness. Just extreme, nasty, gross darkness worshiping demons. New Testament, that starts to get put away. Gospel starts going out, people in every nation are getting saved. Revelation 20 says that Satan is put into a pit. Why? So he cannot deceive the nations. Doesn't say he's put in a pit so he can't walk around like a boring line. Doesn't say he's put in a pit so he can't shoot arrows anymore. Says he's put in a pit so he can't deceive the nations. And I think we're seeing a limited Satan now. Nations aren't being deceived anymore. When the gospel gets to new places on this planet, people are responding to the gospel. They're not being deceived like they were in the Old Testament. But there's another way that I think we can see Satan's binding. And I think we see the answer by looking at what Satan does when he's released. Look down in verse 7. When the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. What does Satan do when he gets out? He gathers, he gathers people to attack the church. He gathers people to attack the church. That's his plan. That's his desire is to destroy the church. And I think we can also see a binding of Satan in the sense that God will not allow Armageddon to happen, this final battle, until God says it can happen. That Satan wants nothing more than to destroy the church. But Jesus says the death of Hades will not conquer the church. Jesus will build his church. And the binding seems to be that Satan cannot do what he wants to do. He cannot bring the nations against the church until God allows him to. Do we see this type of teaching anywhere else? I think we do. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now I'm not 100% sure that this is talking about the same thing. 
But this seems to be very parallel to what's happening in Revelation 20. So in verse 1, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Remember, he's encouraging them. Jesus hasn't come back. Well, how do we know he hasn't come back? Verse 3, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him, so that he may not be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception. For those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. In order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now we'll talk about this passage more when we get here. But I can't deny the fact that this sounds really similar to what's supposed to happen after the millennial reign, right? That Satan wants to bring Armageddon, but can't. Why? Second Thessalonians says there's something restraining him. What's restraining him? This angel that's got him in a, in, a, in a bind. He can't do what he wants to do. But then, he's let loose basically in Second Thessalonians. And lawlessness, the man of lawlessness comes on the scene. And Satan begins to deceive people through what most people would say is the Antichrist. For what purpose? To bring attack against Jesus and the church. To bring attack against the one true God. You read that and it sounds just like what's supposed to happen after Revelation 20. That Satan gets let loose. He starts gathering people through deception. He starts bringing this persecution and tribulation against the church. And what puts an end to it? Jesus coming back. Jesus coming back. So the amillennialist view would say that Satan is bound right now. He can't deceive nations. Nations are walking away from him. Nations, disciples in every nation are coming to Christ. But there's coming a day when Satan will be released and that, that authority will be given back to him to gather a huge deception. A huge deception of people that will seek to attack the church. Revelation 20 says they will gather around who? Let's go back to Revelation 20. They will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. 
You have this picture of Satan bringing battle against the church. I think it's consistent with everything that we've said. That there is a time of tribulation coming. That the church will endure it. That there will be deception and apostasy that will happen in a way that's not going on right now because Satan will be released during that time to do what he wants to do. To do more than just act like a lion. To do more than just shoot arrows. To actually gather an intense army that is bigger than the sands of the sea to attack the church. Which is hard to picture post-millennialism on that because everybody's supposed to be a Christian. And then Jesus comes back, Revelation 19, and puts an end to it. Wipes everybody out, says, absolutely not. Throws them into the lake of fire for eternity. Birds are eating the flesh of this army that is trying to attack Jesus Christ. And then he judges and he ushers us in to eternity. Advocates of amillennialism, I list them for you there. Mark Dever, Tim Keller, Sam Storms, J.I. Packer, Anthony Hoykema, R.C. Sproul, Jay Adams, Cornelius Venema, and then Kim Riddlebarger. To me, this view makes the most sense out of the passages that I read about Jesus coming back. It seems to be the most consistent with what I read in more clear areas of Scripture. Revelation 20, that the millennial reign is happening right now, that Jesus is ruling and reigning in heaven with dead saints, that we as the church are giving an opportunity in, um, this is the last passage we'll look at, Acts Acts 26. This is Paul talking. He's talking about our responsibility. He says, Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Why, why are we talking about all this? Why is this all important? Because to me, like in studying this, if the amillennial position is true, then what it's communicating to us is that we have a gap here, a time window here, to get the gospel out. That Satan is bound in the sense that he cannot deceive and he cannot stop our efforts. Paul says, you have a responsibility to go to the Gentiles. They've been deceived for so long. Get the gospel to them so they can be brought from Satan's kingdom into God's kingdom. Why is it so urgent? Because there's coming a time when Satan will be released. He will gather everybody that's an unbeliever to bring war against the church. Possibly a great tribulation. Where even people within the church will walk away from their faith because the tribulation is so great. The encouragement to us is that even when that happens, Jesus is coming back to put it into it. That battle will be won by Jesus Christ and not by Satan and not by his enemies. But the application for us is that we have time right now, time right now to evangelize this area, this nation, to send people from this church to other nations, like Chris going to Uganda, because we have a time window here where Satan is bound. Where, where Jesus has tied him up so we can go into his house and take people from his kingdom back to the kingdom of God. And we need to take advantage of that opportunity. Some points of agreement and then we're done. 
These views, all four of these views, whichever one you hold to, whichever one you think makes the most sense biblically, these views all agree on this. That Jesus is reigning right now with all authority and He always will. Don't mistakenly think that some of these views think that Jesus won't start reigning until the future. Jesus reigns right now. Some people believe that He'll actually reign here on this earth. But He is definitely reigning right now. We know that from Scripture. He's at the right hand of God. He's putting His enemies under His feet. He's completely sovereign and in control of everything. Satan doesn't do anything without getting permission. Jesus is right now ruling and reigning. Secondly, Satan is always bound by the sovereign rule of God. He has been defeated and he will ultimately be defeated. New Testament tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities of this world. Meaning that Satan and demons have absolutely no control and absolutely no power over us. That they are always bound by the sovereign rule of God. Our culture would love for us to think that evil and darkness cannot be conquered. And I've talked about this before. That horror movies and scary movies always try to portray darkness and evil as undestroyable. That the killer always comes back. That you can't stop wickedness and darkness. The New Testament tells us the exact opposite. That the powers have been disarmed. Then number three, the future is bright for believers. Despite our present circumstances. The future is bright for believers despite any circumstances we face right now. Any tribulation, any trial, any attack by Satan on his church in the future, the future is bright for believers. Jesus is coming back to set everything right, to bring justice, to remove unbelievers, and to bring us into eternity with him. That's why we can disagree about the details, but we can agree on these three important things. Jesus is in control. Satan is not. And the future is really, really good for those of us that persevere till the end. All right? Questions before we close. Questions about... Oh, i got to give you the answers too. Yep. you got eight questions here. The millennium is now between the first and second coming. Jesus comes back after the millennium. Binding of Satan refers to the gospel's advance and Satan being hindered from bringing his army against the church. A thousand years is figurative. First resurrection. Um, has to do with this uh, intermediate state where believers are in heaven. Dead believers are in heaven. That's the first resurrection. Second death refers to hell. Um, the rapture is the same that we get caught up and Jesus comes back and comes right back down with him. And then lastly, number eight, both good and evil will increase side by side. Until Christ returns. We see that in the parable of Jesus. When it talks about spreading the seed. And then the workers come to the owner of the land. And they say hey. Somebody broke into your land. And spread um, weeds. He says look we'll just let them grow up. And then kind of harvest. That's when we'll separate. 
That's the idea of what's going on here with good and evil will continue to increase until Jesus comes back. And when Jesus comes back, Matthew 25, he will separate the sheep from the goats. He will separate those that have been saved and those that have not. Number five is the immediate state. Yeah, yeah. Some millennialists believe that it talks about that the first resurrection is regeneration when we like get saved, but most would say it's the intermediate state where we're in between glorified body. Uh, we get caught up and then we come right back down. Kind of bringing this back to the beginning, why are we even studying this? Because it's a blessing. We're told the blessing for trying to understand this difficult chapter. Uh, there's encouragement. The more we understand about the end times, it gives us clarity about what we're supposed to be doing now. How you understand this um, offers you the encouragement and hope of the future. And thirdly, purity. The fact that Jesus is coming back, the more we think about it, the more we think about it on a daily basis. The more we wake up every day with the mindset that Jesus is coming back, that shapes how I live my life. So that's why we're studying this. I'm not trying to wow you or amaze you with all this information. I'm wanting to equip you so that you can begin to study some of this stuff on your own. And I would encourage you to do that. that um, you guys have unbelievable resources and a mind that can think to study this kind of stuff on your own. And I can give you direction where you want it, but I would encourage you to engage in understanding this stuff um, on your own. That you know what you believe and you're seeking to know what you believe through your own personal study. Any other questions about this that I can answer before we close and eat lunch together? Yep. Um, you said that you definitely don't believe the other that you hold to the omnipotent. Yep. Very cautiously. Just because there's good people that believe these other views, um, John Piper being one that I stand with on just about everything else, um, but he's a historic premillennialist. So I cautiously hold this one in the sense that because there's so much disagreement, I have to admit that there's a possibility of me being wrong about this and it being okay because we can disagree about these things and still be fine. Um, and I haven't studied enough of Revelation and other relevant passages to know for sure that something doesn't contradict what I believe right now. Based off what I've studied, I'm constantly drawn back to this position as I read Scripture and until that stops, I'm going to hold to this position. But until I've thoroughly understood all the difficult passages, um, then I'm still cautious about it. Yep. So in the past, really, we've been talking about any Yep. So that's us if you die right now. Yeah, I would say so. So, what is, like, how we look at the marks? That's just kind of weird. I think that would be to a specific group, potentially, whenever that happens. You know, there's the perspective that beasts and marks and that kind of stuff happened during the 80, 70 time. Others would say that happens in the future. But I, I think you see two 
groupings there. Then I saw thrones and seated on there were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those. So I think you could potentially lump us into that first group if we don't die as a martyr. But then there's also the encouragement that martyrs are definitely there. Like they're they're, um, they're ushered into a good state despite the fact that their last state here on earth was the worst possible. Right, yeah. And that goes back to our numbers symbolic or literal in the book of Revelation. Um, there's some precedent for numbers being symbolic in the sense in Revelation 1 or 2, when there's the image, the vision of Jesus, Jesus is said to have seven eyes. I don't think anybody really believes that Jesus was resurrected on Easter morning with seven eyes. Seven is a number in scripture used for completion. So it more than likely means that Jesus sees and knows everything. Um, and we also have the indication in scripture that a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years. So um, it seems to be used elsewhere. It's just a long period of time. And we, and we use big numbers like that to communicate, to emphasize a large amount sometimes too. Like, um, you know, I could, I could say, you know, if I got, if I walked outside and stepped in an ant pile, I could look down and say, there's millions of ants all over me. Well, I didn't take the time to count how many ants. I'm just trying to stress to you, there are a lot of ants on me. So I think we use numbers like that sometimes to simply emphasize a long period. Not to say that it has to be that way in Revelation 20, but that's how an amillennialist or even a historic premillennialist would say. Other questions about? Yep. Yeah, specific to the binding that they can't deceive nations as a whole from getting saved and they can't bring war on the church in like the the sense of Revelation 20. No, I would say that demons are still very active. Satan is still walking around like a roaring lion. Um, and if I didn't have the passage that says that Jesus has bound the strong man, I would have a harder time believing that, that Satan is bound. But because Jesus communicates on some degree that Satan is bound, that gives me the encouragement that I need to see this as also being okay that Satan is bound, that he can't deceive. doesn't mean he can't do other things. Other questions? I think it would, it would, for this view, it would simply say it's symbolic of, of God's people. Um, I don't think anybody really believes that all of God's people, whichever view you hold to, could ever fit in one city. I mean, if you think about Christians for all time, there ain't a city that can hold them, you know? So, I mean, I think to some degree you have to allow some symbolism there just for the sake of logic to some degree. Yep. Um, it's the historic premillennialism that believes in crows and everything like that is symbolic. Post millennialism thinks that's about the gospel. Are the crows in their thought? Are the crows in Revelation 19 supposed to be the gospel of the picture? Yeah, I don't know exactly. I didn't look at it too long because I thought the whole thing was silly anyway. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. 
I think all of it, Jesus, yeah, I think all of it is them getting saved. I mean, it doesn't sound like a traditional altar call, but that's what they would say. People are getting saved. I mean, it sounds like the craziest destruction ever to me. <laughs> Any other questions about Revelation 20 that I can try to help answer? I'd encourage you to, to pick one of these views and just kind of begin studying it. And just see where it goes and see what you're able to understand. Um, there's great blessing in trying to understand this. And I can tell you that even making an effort to understand this puts you far and far and above what a lot of believers and churches are doing. There's, there's a lot of believers and churches that are content to not know about the end times. And they are not making any effort to know about the end times. And like we said, Paul was very specific in 1 Thessalonians to disciple new believers about the end times. And so if we're going to make disciples here at Sovereign Hope, we need to know enough about the end times to teach people the encouragement and hope that comes from the fact that Jesus is coming back. The more you know about it, the more confident you'll be in talking to other new believers about the return of Jesus. All right, let's pray. God, we praise you and thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us the, the picture of the end so that we have the assurance and hope that we win, that you win, that this battle will be uh, an overwhelming victory by Jesus Christ, that Satan will be defeated. God, we praise you and thank you that even though some of these passages are difficult and confusing and uh, we may leave this morning with more questions than answers, God, I pray that we would rally around the fact that you are completely in control right now, that Satan submits to you, that he doesn't do anything without your permission, and that ultimately the future is very, very bright for us as believers. God, help it to encourage us to persevere, to fight sin this week, knowing that our King is coming back one day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um,